Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a coalition of public and community radio stations in Colorado, New Mexico, Utah and Wyoming. I'm Maeve Conran, the Coalition's Managing Editor, and today, with an increase in fentanyl overdoses throughout the Rocky Mountain region, we'll hear about harm reduction efforts in Colorado and Utah. And the lives I get to see saved, they just light a fire in me. Then from a nuclear weapons plant to a wildlife refuge, we'll hear about ongoing environmental concerns surrounding Rocky Flats outside of Denver. Rocky Flats is one of the most important historical and environmental stories in the history of the United States. From the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition, it's the Regional Roundup. Fentanyl is a big problem in this region. The Rocky Mountain Division of the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration said in January that they had seized more than 5.8 million potentially deadly doses of the drug last year in Colorado, Utah, Wyoming and Montana. And the number of overdoses is on the rise across all of those states. Communities are responding to fentanyl in different ways. Reporter Clark Adamitis of KSUT and KSJD in southwest Colorado has done extensive reporting on efforts by teens in Durango to make Narcan available on school campuses. And reporter Haddison Rensbury of KDNK in Carbondale has been looking at efforts around harm reduction and education in her community. Haddison and Clark, thank you both so much for talking to us here on the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Regional Roundup. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. Clark, I'd like to start with you. Tell us what's been happening in Durango and particularly the youth-led activism that has led to this decision by the school board, the 9R school board in Durango, to allow Narcan to be made available. Take us back to the origins of that activism, why the students are so passionate about this. So in Durango, in December 2021, uh, high school students lost one of their friends to a tragic opioid overdose. And as a result, even though that was over a year ago, they have spent the past year, almost year and a half now, coordinating, organizing, speaking to their principals, speaking to the superintendent, speaking to school board members, asking, can we have more uh, fentanyl test strips? Can we have Narcan in school? Can uh, we have, you know, uh, opioid overdose harm reduction training and the school has heard them uh, it took a lot of time and but the the thing that wasn't happening was Narcan there was a specific school policy that was blocking students from carrying Narcan in school on their person during the school day and after one behind closed doors meeting with the superintendent of the Durango 9R district uh, they decided to take their movement public to the school board in January of this year. We'll, we'll talk about where we're at right now in just a moment, but I, I want to take us back to that terrible tragedy that happened in December 2021 and why this is so important for communities really around the entire region, because often you have teens who don't realise what they're 
taking. There was something that was laced with fentanyl and they didn't know what it was. You know, talk a little bit about that reality, because when people hear about overdoses, they don't often understand the context of where they're happening. Right. So the details I know about that overdose are it was high school kids uh, across the street um, from some other high school kids and they just found some pills. They found the pills in an abandoned car, I believe, and they were laced with fentanyl and they didn't know what it was. Zoe Ramsey is currently a junior at Animus High School. She was friendly with the partygoers, and while she wasn't at the party that night, she's seen all the texts about the pills. And they texted all of our friends, like everybody being like, hey, do you want to buy pills? Do you want to buy pills? And everyone's like, no. What they found out later, it was Percocet laced with fentanyl. And um, apparently fentanyl is being introduced into the street drug supply. And because the street drug supply is unrelated, you don't really know how much fentanyl is in any pill that you're taking, um, that you're buying on the street, or that you're finding on the street. Um, and fentanyl is really easy to overdose on. Um, one EMT said that the amount that he's allowed to give uh, is, is much, much lower than the amount that they're finding in some of these pills when people overdose. Well, I think that case really highlights what's happening all around the region, if not the country. And Haddison, I'd like to bring you in because you spoke with Dr. Robert Valuk, who is the executive director of Colorado's Consortium for Prescription Drug Abuse Prevention. Now, they have a very specific initiative, the Keep the Party Safe initiative. Because of situations like this, it really is an education and awareness campaign. It's trying to reach people and educate them of a couple of things. One is they may be at risk when they may not even think they are. People are I think starting to be aware of that because it's getting closer to home. We're really trying to raise that awareness that fentanyl is there. It is obviously a very, very serious, deadly kind of threat to them. It shows up in places where you might not expect it. You're not seeking illicit drugs necessarily, or you think you're getting a tablet that would be a prescription drug tablet, but it's not. It's a counterfeit tablet or something that's been counterfeited or laced with fentanyl. So to make people aware of the danger, and then what are some steps they can take to minimize their own risk and to keep themselves away from that danger. And we have several steps that the campaign have naloxone, designate a non-user, know what an overdose looks like and how to respond to it with that naloxone, and then potentially as well have things like fentanyl test strips available, know what those are, and then to call 911. Well, this campaign, even though they sort of ramped it up during the spring break, time of the year is generally aimed towards adults, especially young adults, to make sure that they're aware that, you know, there is a judgment-free program where people can get some information on how to, you know, still engage in the activities that they might want to be engaging in, but to do so in a way that is um, cognizant of the concerns that people have and cognizant of the situation that we're in as a state and as a country. What really resonated with me when I heard you speaking with Dr. Vluk was that a lot of times people don't always know what it is that they're taking. And that reminds me of, you know, what happened there in Durango, because people are vulnerable to a fentanyl overdose, but they don't even know that that's what they're taking. There's often these pills that are laced with fentanyl. Yeah, yeah. Um, Something that really stuck with me after I talked with Maggie Seldine from High Rockies Harm Reduction, which is local to our valley, um, and she actually does a lot of outreach throughout the state, 
um, is she specifically wanted to talk about the fact that these are a form of poisoning. Because it is truly fentanyl poisonings that are driving the true relevance of this. And again, meaning people who use cocaine recreationally or MDMA recreationally or meth recreationally, all of these people can potentially be exposed to fentanyl in a very small amount, can be lethal, and we have less time to respond than in a traditional opioid overdose. It can be as little as three minutes without oxygen before someone experiences cardiac arrest from a fentanyl overdose. Um, the fact that people don't know that they're ingesting fentanyl and that that's not a substance they had planned on putting on in their body because everyone seems to know how dangerous this is at this point. Um, and a lot of these overdoses, like uh, Dr. Valak said, now most of them involve fentanyl is a very serious issue. And um, part of that conversation is the fact that this is not something people are specifically doing to themselves. And part of that is the conversation about how we want to phrase that by using something like poisoning along with that because overdose has such a connotation of choice and such a connotation of um, personal knowledge that may not be there. Well, Clark, I'd like to go back to you and what's happened then in Durango. You know, you spoke to so many of these students. They're so passionate. Take us through how effective the students organizing actually was and ultimately what the 9R school district in Durango has decided. So the students performed multiple rallies at school board meetings. And were petitioning amongst their classmates and they got hundreds of signatures um, and then they started their public process in January, and then at the end of March, uh, the school board made their decision. So um, in basically a two months period of time, the students were able to make their case, uh, share how long they had already been working on it, um, create public a public forum that uh, the school board was at, that community members were at, that the students were at. Uh, and and it, it worked. The, the, the school district board members, uh, when they made their decision, each of them kind of spoke about why they uh, ag agreed with the students or disagreed with them, um, saying it's really bold, it's really brave, um, this hasn't been legally tested, but I'm still willing to do this with you. Board member Katie Stewart revealed that she was on the fence when she arrived at the meeting. Uh, I really didn't know how I was going to vote until the meeting started or what I felt was appropriate. But Stewart said she was moved by the conviction of the teenagers in the room, and she addressed them directly. You were brave bringing that to us to stand up for your fellow students um, in the community. I've decided to be brave with you. They heard all of the points the students were making. Um, yep, and it worked. So ultimately, they will be allowed to have Narcan or Naloxone, another way to talk about that, um, at the high school in Durango. Is that effectively now what the policy is? Yes. So at Durango High School, um, the school board has allowed the superintendent, her name is Dr. Karen Chester, to go ahead and implement this policy, which she'd already drafted and showed to the board. Um, that would allow students to carry Narcan in school. Um, it hasn't been implemented yet. We're still waiting on that news. Um, 
and then we'll wait to see actually how the whole process goes. So that's what's happening next. Well, Clark, I want to give a shout out to you for your reporting on this. You've done this multi-part series, really in-depth reporting on what's happened in Durango. And I know that that has directly impacted the students and the people who were part of the story. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's been really great doing this project. The students have been super duper helpful to me, uh, sharing their personal stories and sharing everything they've learned. Um, And I was very grateful that at a recent public forum, where the school board was at, the students were at, EMTs were at. Uh, the students cited some of my reporting um, when they were talking about what doctors had to say uh, about uh, what happens when you administer Narcan and what happens during an opioid overdose. So that was really cool to see that. Well, Haddison, I want to go back to you. You mentioned that as part of your reporting, you've been speaking with Maggie Seldine, who is the director and founder of High Rockies Harm Reduction, which is in your local area, this organisation. And and that idea of harm reduction, you know, this is a term that has been around for a while, but there has been so much pushback on that where there have been by certain decision makers, you know, a reaction to say, well, if we talk about how people can party safely or how to avoid an overdose, we're only encouraging it. And they don't necessarily see the harm reduction aspect of this education. Rather, they're still maybe looking at all of this through the prism of, well, this is an illegal activity, so we have to look at it in that regard. You know, has that been a barrier that folks like Maggie Seldine have been up against people who want to talk about this in terms of public health, are they still coming up against these barriers where maybe some decision makers are resistant to that? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Harm reduction advocates have definitely seen pushback from public health or municipalities or uh, county commissioners, things like that. but in a lot of cases, the argument of the harm reduction advocates is that this that their method is more effective at keeping people alive. Uh, and in the case of our county, Garfield County over here, um, it's been pretty well established that High Rockies Harm Reduction has been working with local law enforcement. They are working directly with Garfield County Public Health. Um, They get money through the commissioners to do some of their work. And although we've recently had some amount of um, distasteful and frankly callous comments from commissioners on the process of harm reduction, we are also seeing a more accepting environment of the concept of harm reduction that I think a lot of different parts of Colorado are seeing. Well, I know there's a lot more in both of your reporting on this and people can find Clark's multi-part series on what's been happening in Durango. That is at ksut.org and ksjd.org. Haddison Rensbury's series on fentanyl and naloxone is also at their website, which is kdnk.org. And I appreciate both of your work on this. Thank you so much, Haddison and Clark. Yeah, thanks, Maeve. Thanks, Hattie. This has been really great. Yeah, thanks for having us on. It's nice to talk to people about these issues that are really deeply affecting our communities. Clark Adamitis of KSUT and KSJD and Haddison Rensbury of KDNK. Well, in Utah, where fentanyl overdoses have increased 300% over the past three years, some lawmakers have been calling for an increase in legal penalties. 
In February, Republican state legislators introduced a bill that would have allowed those who sell drugs to be prosecuted in overdose deaths. But many harm reduction advocates said the measure, which was ultimately defeated, would discourage people from seeking help. At KRCL in Salt Lake City, Nick Burns spoke with Mindy Vincent, founder and executive director of Utah Harm Reduction. Senate Bill 254 was the drug-induced homicide bill. And this bill, I think this is the third or fourth year it has like been resurrected and run again. And what this bill does is it creates a whole other class of criminal homicide. And it would actually be a secondary felony, which is a one to 15 year, one to 15 years in prison. Uh, if you share, give, sell, contribute to the death of another person from a substance. There's a lot of research about drug-induced homicide bills, the damage they cause instead of the help that they provide. Um, We've come so far with passing Good Samaritan bills and things like that to get people to help people who are overdosing or having an issue with drugs, and that would take us backwards 30-plus years. Right. Who would call 911, right? Nobody would. Nobody's going to call 911. Like you say, this bill's come around multiple years in a row. Yeah, and it does come from... It's their emotionally driven policies, right? And all policy, but especially drug policy, should be science-driven and research-based. What's what's the emotion behind it? I mean, one, there's still plenty of people who think that addiction is a choice and mm-hmm. that people who use drugs deserve to die. But in addition to that, I mean, with the opiate crisis and then now with the fentanyl, you know, we're seeing, I mean, a lot of people have died, people who t- who weren't dying before, right? Because people have always been dying from drugs, but we ignored it for a really long time because those people weren't the people they were looking at, right? But now we've had a lot of white middle-class people dying and, you know, and validly so, moms who lose their kids to an overdose, they're mad and, you know, they've lost their baby mm. and they want someone to pay for that. And that is fair and it's valid. And... People who use drugs are usually getting drugs from their friends. Even drug dealers are just drug users with a hustle, right? The same as somebody sometimes steals for drugs. Sometimes people sell drugs in order to stay well, right? And this bill would have made it so that even somebody who just shares drugs with their friend to help them get well, because specifically opiates, people are not getting high. They're getting well, right? So you're just trying to help your friend not be sick. That's exactly what happened with my little brother and my sister. She'd been cut off of her pain medications my sister died in 2014 from a heroin overdose. It was the very first time she did heroin. It was actually a heroin and suboxone overdose. But the doctors had cut her off her prescription pain medication. She wasn't ready to quit. She didn't want to quit. They didn't um, give her the support she needed to be able to taper off those medications or be cut all the way off of them. But this is, a, this is also a product of bad policy because we started cracking down on all the doctors and making it so they just cut people off. And then this is what happens. People go seek street drugs. And she right. begged my brother for a week, please help me. I'm just in so much pain and I'm so sick, please. And he got her $20 worth of heroin. She split it with her brother or with uh, her boyfriend. And my sister died. And under this kind of a bill, my brother would have gone to prison. When my sister died, I already knew, I, you know, I knew what had happened, right? And that was the biggest fear I had is, you know, and it, even, it makes me choke up because it's like, oh my gosh, what if somebody comes for my brother? Well, and it would, locking him up hardly seems like a way to help him clean up. Certainly not. And I said that to the senator who was running this bill, that you couldn't put my brother in a prison worse than the one he's put himself in. 
Do you think you had an effect speaking against this bill? Do you <laughs> think you helped kill it? Uh, I think maybe for other folks, but certainly not for Senator Weiler. Senator uh. Weiler said in on the Senate floor that he said, you know, the woman who testified yesterday about her brother who had shared drugs with her sister who passed away. You know, I would say, you know, that's very sad, but I would say to those people, take note. Don't give drugs to people who kill people. <laughs> he said something very, like those last words are not exact, but they're very, huh. very close. And it's, yeah, it it We're was recorded, so it's easy to find. But yeah, he did say that. He doesn't even know any of the circumstances whatsoever of my sister's death, of my, of my family, of any of it. You're pretty up in this chit chat. Yeah. What's the secret? Well, I'm really passionate about harm reduction and the thing that like lights my fire and makes me go is you know well one avenging those that we have lost mm. through bad policy and through bad providing honestly all of us providers should be you know we should take accountability and pay attention to how we're providing services so we're providing open and welcoming services for people so we have the opportunity to save their life but then the amount of people who turn their lives around and the things they do and the lives i get to see saved they just light a fire in me that just, it makes me want to fight for every single life because they're all worth it and I love them all. Mindy Vincent of Utah Harm Reduction, speaking with Nick Burns on KRCL's Radioactive. You can find the full show at krcl.org. You're listening to The Regional Roundup, a production of the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition. I'm Maeve Conran. Just outside Denver, Colorado, is a wildlife refuge whose 5,000 acres is home to a multitude of flora and fauna. It's now managed by the US Department of Wildlife Service, but in years gone by, Rocky Flats was managed by the Department of Energy, as it was home to one of the country's nuclear weapons factories. KGNU's Shelley Schlender spoke with author Kristen Iverson, who worked at Rocky Flats and who grew up in the area. She wrote about that experience in Full Body Burden, growing up in the nuclear shadow of Rocky Flats. Iverson is one of the many voices still raising concerns about the environmental issues at the site. Rocky Flats is one of the most important historical and environmental stories in the history of the United States. It is at the heart of the Cold War. There was extensive radioactive and toxic contamination that continues to the present day. And the public health effects of that contamination continue to the present day and will continue to affect us into the future. Well, Kristen Iverson, for people who drive down between Golden and Boulder, there's just a little sign that says Rocky Flats. Somebody who doesn't know the history of what happened there may not know that it was a nuclear weapons plant that was top secret and made one of the most toxic substances around called plutonium. That's exactly right. Rocky Flats began production in the early 1950s. What they produced, unbeknownst to the public, was plutonium uh, triggers for nuclear weapons. That is the heart of every nuclear bomb produced in the United States. That's quite amazing to think. It was less than 15 miles from Boulder, really less than 20 miles from Denver, this plant making this very 
powerful and dangerous stuff. Right. And example at Los Alamos, um, where they developed the nuclear bomb and produced some plutonium pits. If you worked at Los Alamos, you lived at Los Alamos, and it was all secret and contained. What was different with Rocky Flats was that they needed to depend upon a local workforce. So when I worked at Rocky Flats, there were almost 6,000 people working there. Workers were not allowed to talk about the kind of work that they did, That all going all the way back to the early 1950s. It was all top secret. They were not subject in the early years to any kind of environmental regulation. Um, so there was a lot going on that did affect local populations. Over the course of almost 40 years, Rocky Flats produced more than 70,000 plutonium pits or triggers for nuclear weapons, and each one of those triggers contained enough breathable particles of plutonium to kill every person on Earth. You grew up downwind of Rocky Flats. Well, I grew up in Arvada, kind of on the edge of Arvada, not far from Stanley Lake. And we were pretty much directly downwind from fires that created uh, toxic and radioactive clouds that passed over our neighborhood. Some of the other towns that were affected include Westminster, Broomfield, uh, Superior, certainly, um, parts of Boulder. Anything southeast of the plant was most directly affected. But... Um, as Dr. Carl Johnson, who was the health director of Jefferson County, when a lot of this contamination was, was actively happening, he recommended that anyone within a 30-mile radius of Rocky Flats should be concerned. And he recommended that there be no home building, new home building within that 30-mile radius. So that's the area that is most directly affected, although some of the bigger fires like the one in 1957 or 1969, um, created a large enough um, toxic cloud that it traveled beyond, not just beyond Arvada, Westminster, Broomfield, and those areas, but even beyond the, the Colorado border. There was a push among citizens to close Rocky Flats, and Rocky Flats was finally closed, and then it went through being a Superfund site with a huge cleanup. And now, when we fast forward to today, what is Rocky Flats and what is its impact? If a person were to drive down Highway 93, for example, and look over at the site, they would see open land. There would be no signage that would tell them what happened there or why it might, why it might be potentially dangerous to hike or bike at the Rocky Flats National Wild Refuge. What happened after the cleanup, and let me emphasize, it was a compromised cleanup, the site is not um, pristine uh, by any means. There's still a great deal of contamination on site. Every time we have a major event like the flood in 2017 or the Marshall Fire uh, more recently, anything that uh, threatens the site in any way, we have a new concern about how much contamination is coming off site and still continuing to affect current residents around Rocky Flats. You know, our great, great, great grandchildren are still going to have to be worrying about uh, plutonium at Rocky Flats. And, and with plutonium, something as small as a millionth of a gram, if it is breathed into the lungs or somehow taken into the body, can create a cancer. Are nuclear weapon triggers still made in the United States? Yes, they are. Um, production of plutonium 
Triggers has restarted at Los Alamos, and they are currently talking about um, starting it up at the Savannah River site. So it's it's a very um, current and concerning uh, topic, um, what we plan to do in this country with our nuclear weapons production and the cost of that production health-wise and otherwise. Kristen Iverson, author of Full Body Burden, growing up in the nuclear shadow of Rocky Flats, speaking with KGNU's Shelley Schlender. Find out more at news.kgnu.org. You've been listening to The Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico. Thanks to Clark Adamitis, Haddison Rensbury, Nick Burns and Shelley Schlender for contributions to today's show. Our theme music is Take Me Somewhere by Joel Adam Russell. I'm Maeve Conran. Thanks for listening. Thank you.